Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. Well, we have another special episode for you featuring Adam Bristol. Hey, Indra, it's good to be here again. And one of our favorite authors, someone we've heard on the podcast before, Andy Weir. Yeah, Andy Weir, one of the, I think one of the best active uh, science fiction writers, known to many as the author of a novel called The Martian, which then became a blockbuster film with Matt Damon. Mm-hmm. He also wrote a, a novel called Artemis and, and numerous short stories. And he's out with a new one called Project Hail Mary. So I got to chat with the Andy Weir, which is awesome, super fun, super interesting guy. We got to talk about really a lot of the nitty gritty of the book and really what went into it. It's quite an expansive book. It goes beyond, you know, a single planet or a single moon base. I haven't read the book yet. I'm super excited to read it, knowing how much you liked it. I mean, I saw multiple times where you stayed up well past your bedtime. Painful (laughs) that I can't talk to you about the (laughs) book. Reading this book. Yeah, you gave up your sleep for it. But critical to not talk to you about the book, because as you'll learn in the interview, there's so many ups and downs and twists and turns and unexpected plot changes that you really don't want spoilers. Yeah, and I so mean, this, this interview actually gets cut in half because I admonish our listeners, spoiler alerts coming now, turn off the podcast, go read the book, come back later, because after that point, Andy and I decide okay, let's really get down to brass tacks and let's talk about certain things that happened, why he made those choices. And again, because he's more of a hard science fiction writer, does a ton of research to figure out what's plausible, what's logically, you know, conclusive from a prior that um, I want to understand his thinking. And if you haven't read the book, just please do yourself a favor. Don't listen to that part of the podcast. <laughs> you know, watching you come kind of like talk about little parts of the book and how you excited excited you were about it reminded me of my own reactions to one of my favorite books, Neil Stevenson's Seven Eves, where all of a sudden halfway through the book, like things completely shift. And the book is about something completely different. And it felt, felt like there were a number of times just from me as an outsider watching your reactions where you would come to me and be like, this book is not at all about what I thought it was going to be about. Yeah. Andy Weir, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm incredibly excited. I finished your book over the weekend, and I got to tell you, it was 
It was awesome. It was oh, awesome. Thanks. I was a big fan of The Martian, a big fan of Artemis. This one is expansive. It's interstellar. It 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 approaches some topics that I don't think you've approached before, and I want to get into some of those, but I think that right. was really, really extraordinary. On the one hand, I guess I have to ask you, most of my listeners will know of you, of course, from the hit novel and then the blockbuster movie, The Martian. I have to ask you if you've been following all the developments with the Perseverance probe and all the incredible developments that are going on in real world space exploration. Oh, of course. I mean, I've been like, I've been just obsessed with Percy and with the ingenuity. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah, know. It's amazing. And uh, one thing is I'm particularly impressed by Ingenuity's camera because we keep seeing photos that it sends back and it's oftentimes photos of the ground and you can see Ingenuity's shadow and the blades on the shadow are completely crisp and clear, yeah. the propeller blades. Yeah. And those things are spinning at like, I think- 2,500 RPM, wasn't it? Yeah, it's something like 40 revolutions per second yeah. kind of thing. And to have that with no rolling shutter effect, with no blurring, nothing like that, Wow, that is an impressive camera. But, you know, they don't send the cheap cameras to Mars, right? No, no. And it is, you know, the the landing was just watching that live on pins and needles. Again, the yeah. clarity of, again, speaking to this camera, of thinking, good gravy. I'm looking at the surface of Mars. I know. And we're about to land on it in real time here, or, well, of course, with the transmission delay. But right. still, it is just mind-boggling. And in a way, you are credited with greatly increasing public enthusiasm for Mars and Mars exploration. How does it feel now six, seven years you know, into that? Well, it feels great. I'm glad that I could you know, help get people enthusiastic, but it's not like I'm responsible for you know, people being interested in Mars. I'm just, I'm really thinking of myself as more as one of, one of the people who benefited from the public interest in Mars. I, I, I don't think it went the other direction. It's not like nobody cared about Mars until my book came out. Well, It's always captured our fascination, you know. For sure, for sure. And then, so the new book is called Project Hail Mary. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to piece together some public comments of yours over the years. <laughs> and I believe that this book has actually been in the works for several years, probably five or six years. And tell me if I'm accurate on that. And there's a reason why I'm asking, because coming out in 2021 where we're dealing with a human now novel coronavirus pandemic, there feels like there's some sort of topical overlap, (laughs) at least in an interstellar pandemic in Project Hail Mary. So how long have you been working on it? And uh, how much has the current pandemic influenced your thinking? Well, yeah. Okay, so... I'll answer the second question first. Um, the pandemic didn't affect the writing of the novel at all because I finished the first, I finished the whole thing before the pandemic happened. So I was done with the novel in January of 2020. So it was just, it took a really long time to get on shelves because the pandemic got in the way of the production pipeline. But yeah, I mean, at the time that I completed the novel, the there, I, we were getting some news reports of like, oh, there's a disease in like Wuhan, China. And that's about, that's about it. And uh, so definitely the pandemic didn't have any effect on the writing because it hadn't happened yet. And yes, you're kind of right in that it's been indirectly in development for years and years. Although I only spent about a year, year and a half writing it, a lot of the ideas and concepts for the book came from uh, other story ideas I had had and then abandoned. So between The Martian and Artemis, you know, Martian was my first book, Artemis was my second. Uh, Between them, I was working on a completely unrelated book called Jack 
Z-H-E-K. And it was going to be this epic space opera, soft sci-fi, aliens, faster than light travel, telepathy, all that stuff. But as I got into writing it, I mean, I got a contract with Random House and everything like that. And as I worked on it, as I got to writing it, I got about a year into it and about 70,000 words for reference, The Martians, about 100,000 words. And I realized that it sucked and it was irredeemable. <laughs> it was just too complicated, too epic in scale. I I kind of tried to be George R.R. R. Martin and failed. Like there was like all these overlapping plot threads and characters and stuff like that. But instead of being interest, an interesting tapestry like Game of Thrones, it was just a muddled, confusing mess without any particularly interesting stuff going on. And it was going really, really slowly. It was, and, and I couldn't I couldn't strip it down or calm it down or anything to make it more reasonable. So I, I asked my um, editor if I could have another year and then hit the big red reset button and write a completely different book, which is what I did. And I'm glad I did. But there were a couple of elements to Jack that I thought were really awesome. And those those became Hail Mary, which is a completely different book than Jack. There are two main things. One of them is a spacecraft fuel that can store energy as mass, which means like a very small amount of fuel can power your spacecraft. Like uh, it can do the propulsion for an enormous amount of energy uh, that way. And, and so... In Jack, it was called Black Matter, and it was this mm. technology. But I decided to make it a life form in Project Hail Mary, and it's just this you know, single-celled organism. And then things fell together to make that a good cohesive plot line. And then also there was one character in Jack that I really liked and, and really – and she wasn't even the main character, but she was a character that I really liked. And she was um, – uh, a woman who was like given tremendous amounts of secret authority, like all powerful in a way. And she used it like ruthlessly and relentlessly toward um, solving these problems. And so that became the character of Strat. So those were elements I stole. And then I had for a long time thought, wouldn't it be neat if, you know, a story where a guy just wakes up with amnesia aboard a spaceship. And that was just like an idea I had. And so these things kind of came together and they 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 fit well yeah. together. Well, that's actually a perfect segue. I want to talk about Strat because, of course, not knowing that at least cognitive backstory or the sort of, you know, the the author's backstory of just coming to that character, she is an incredibly important part, certainly in the first half of the book. She kind of makes another appearance uh, when you learn more about uh, some of her methods later in the book. <laughs> But she's not capricious, right? She's not arbitrary. I mean, she's no. arbitrary, but she is thoughtful. She is logical. And she's really basically like a GSD kind of person in an unprecedented time of a global emergency. Yeah, she's basically got more authority than any human being has ever had. And nobody really knows that except for the people who are important enough to do what she says. And she is is the right person for this job. You you probably wouldn't like to hang out with her, but she's the right person for this job. And she is relentless and extremely logical about what she has to do. And she her job is literally to save every human being alive. I mean, like if she fails at her goal, then humanity will end. And so any sacrifice is worth it to pay. 
Well, it's a very clarifying mission. Right? Yeah. I mean, a lot of the extraneous stuff just falls away when you have this very singular epic goal. Yeah, when there's truly nothing more important than what you're working on, you can uh, you can let some of the morality stuff go. <laughs> but let's talk a second. We haven't talked about why she's been in, in, endowed with such powers. Well, the premise of the story is basically there's a single-celled organism that the humans end up naming astrophage. And the, the astrophage life cycle is basically it lives on the surface of stars. It's like an algae in the ocean, but instead of the ocean, it lives on, on stars. And it collects energy from the star, plenty to be had there, and then uses that energy to migrate um, from the star to you know, a nearby planet in orbit around that star so it can get the, the elements it needs to reproduce. So it'll like migrate from the star to like a planet nearby that has carbon dioxide. Then it'll gather enough of that to breed and it'll make a copy of itself. It'll mitose just with mitosis and then it'll return to the star. And that's the life cycle. And also it will spore out to other stars. So it will, you know, go off in all directions and some, you know, one out of every hundred gajillion of them will happen to find another star. So it's exactly like mold. It just spores out and, you know, some percentage of it will manage to seed. And so in order to travel through space, it needs to store an enormous amount of energy and be really efficient about it. And so it stores that as mass, and then it releases that mass. It mass converts it into light and uses that light as propulsion, which you can do. I mean, that, that's, that's real physics. And then, um, so that's how it flies around in space. So the whole, an astrophage, it's a single-celled organism, and it's only like, like 20 picometers across, something like that. And but it can, you know, travel from one star to another. Even it is somewhat taking advantage of time dilation too. So when it's when it's traveling, when it's sporing out, they can live longer than you might have expected in deep space because they're going so close to the speed of light. The amount of time that they experience on their way from one star to another is much shorter. Anyway, this stuff, uh, some of this astrophage, uh, infects our sun. And, and it's growing, you know, out of control. It's like an algae bloom on the sun. And it's so much of the sun has astrophage in it that it's starting to lose its luminance. The planet Earth is not getting as much energy from the sun as it always has. And in about 30 years, they calculate it won't be enough energy to support life on Earth, or at least not large, complicated life. The food chains will collapse and literally everything will die. So uh, they have to find a solution. And so the bad news is astrophage is eating your sun. The good news is astrophage makes a great spacecraft fuel. You can collect it, breed it up in farms, and then use that to power a spaceship, which is handy because they look around and all the stars in our local neighborhood of the galaxy are also dimming. Um, astrophage has infected all of them, uh, except one, the star Tau Ceti, which is about uh, 12 light years away right next door in the grand scheme of things. I mean, mm -hmm. the Milky Way is 100,000 light years across. So Tau Ceti is not affected. It's not dimming. It's, it doesn't seem to be having any problems at all with astrophage. And so as a last-ditch effort, a.k.a. a Hail Mary pass, they make a spacecraft that is powered by astrophage, and it's a truly interstellar craft. And they want to send people to Tau Ceti in the hope that they can find out what it is about Tau Ceti that makes it immune to astrophage, and then somehow implement that solution back on Earth. And that's the premise. I mean, that is an incredible synopsis. You have 
probably taken us maybe a third of the way through the book on just that alone. <laughs> so I'm telling you in the sense that this podcast will, will, will try to reserve any spoiler alerts for the very end, because this, as I read it, there are so many twists and turn unexpected events. And again, in typical Andy Weir style has Aww. a degree of scientific accuracy and, or at least plausibility and technical details to make it incredibly fun. And Thanks. so what you just described, there's a lot to unpack there. The first thing to unpack there is when we learn about astrophage, astrophage, of course, human scientists are able to first collect a little bit of astrophage from a probe, and they, of course, give it to some scientists, and they're very interested in what the heck are these little things, because they first see them only as black specks on the camera probe, if I remember right. Well, the first the first thing they see is this line of infrared radiation oh, yes. going between the sun and Venus, and they can't figure out what that is. And that that's basically the exhaust trails of astrophage. <laughs> yep, yep, at a particular frequency, and so they collect them. and And the first, I'd say, really interesting thought concept are the concepts of panspermia, and of mm -hmm. course, you know, what is the nature of life? What what is required for life, and what is not? And we talked about, you know, one of the main characters, his name is Ryland Grace, was a student of biology, and he supported the possibility that life throughout the universe doesn't necessarily require liquid water. That, is that, was, his, yeah, that, that was, was his, his thesis. Mm -hmm. And we come to learn, and I hope this isn't saying too much, that he was proven wrong. Yeah. And that astrophage <laughs> shares many features, organelles. DNA, things that look like life on Earth. So maybe talk a little bit about how much work you did thinking about panspermia, this idea that life has somehow been seeded all around the galaxy by some process or something. And yet, so you, you adopted that tacit assumption and then um, the implications that come from that possibility. Yeah, the idea behind the panspermia was really because I just felt like the plot was a little too implausible without it. So I'm one of those people, I, I, I'm a nitpicker when it comes to science and stories and stuff like that. In my own stories, I'm particularly strict. Um, and so one thing, as I worked on this story, it really bothered me that there were like, there are multiple different planets all within a few light years of each other, all within like 20, all within like 20 light years that all have complete biospheres. And so I asked myself, like, you know, if life is really am I saying life is really this likely? You know, is it really this likely that a planet will develop life? Because if so, I mean, I have made it within my fictional setting so incredibly likely that life will evolve naturally that it becomes questionable why there's only one planet in our solar system that that has life, right? It becomes, it becomes so common that it becomes improbable that out of all the bodies in our solar system, the moons, the planets, everything, that we're the only one that has any life. And so I'm like, I, I don't like that. I, I, and I also don't, I just don't think it's plausible that life would be that likely. I, it's, it's incredibly rare and very unlikely. So I decided, okay, the only explanation I have for why all these, you know, there are three three, at least three, three that we know of, functional biospheres all within such a short distance is that there was only one, uh, life only evolved once and then it spread out and 
all these biospheres are actually, they all have a common ancestry. And so that's what I decided. Now, astrophage is a life form that travels from one star to another. So it seemed reasonable to me to assume, okay, before astrophage, some ancestor of astrophage, some equivalent of a dinosaur astrophage, whatever, was a, you know, another, a different single-celled organism that could spread out, you know, that could travel interstellar distances um, as part of its life cycle. And that ended up occasionally running into a planet where it could just barely survive and reproduce on its own. And so that is what led to life existing on the other two uh, places. So we've got three biospheres, but only one genesis. And that made things so much easier for me because I, I didn't have to say, oh, what an alarming coincidence. Life evolved separately in these three things. Most readers wouldn't have called me out on that, but I feel mm -hmm. better having a panspermia event. Also, since I like to get way deep down into the details and the nitty gritty, I wanted to know what the biology of these life forms was like. I wanted a plausible explanation for, okay, how does astrophage work? What's going on inside that cell? How does it reproduce? How does this happen? How does that happen? And I, I just realized, wow, this would be a whole lot easier if, it, if there was a panspermia event, because then I just say, it has DNA, it has mitochondria, it has, you know, just all the, all the organelles and uh, cellular machinery that we have in our cells. And subject to evolution. Absolutely. Well, any life, whether or not related to us, would be subject to evolution. And just, I guess I want to remind our readers, or readers, listeners, I want to remind our listeners that... Our viewers. Our viewers. <laughs> sorry, we're <laughs> multimedia right now. But Tau Ceti exists. It truly is a star. It exists. Yes. And importantly, and I'm, I'm absolutely sure, not just that the proximity was what intrigued you, but the possibility of habitable planets. There are planets there that have really picked the interest of exobiologists as mm -hmm. potential habitable zones. Right. And one of them, uh, one of those planets is featured in the story. All the, for lack of a better term, heavenly bodies, all of the stars and planets and everything in this book are real planets that really exist. And I stuck to all the information that is known about them. So for the exoplanets, obviously things in our solar system we know a whole lot about, but for the exoplanets that I mentioned and bring up, I do maintain all the information that we know as of the writing. So like their mass, their orbital characteristics, stuff like that. Yeah, and and when one planet in particular shows up is Eridani, and we get to learn a lot more about Eridani. Yeah, the the star is forty Eridani. The planet that you're talking about is yeah. actually named in the real world is named forty Eridani B, and it's uh it's an exoplanet. It's it's a real planet. It's about eight times the mass of Earth. It's in orbit around the star forty Eridani, and uh, yeah, it's in a very tight close orbit. In fact, but also the object of interest from the SETI Institute here in the Bay Area, even Frank Drake, uh, you know, of, of the Drake's equa Drake's Drake equation, equation yep. of course, was interested in this uh, part of the solar system and, and, and these heavenly bodies. And the so, galaxy, and, yeah, yeah, exactly. And so you weren't, you weren't just picking things out of thin air, but rather there's a whole literature, a whole, you know, kind of... Well, there is some overlap. I mean, I, I did kind of pick them out of thin air in a random way, but basically I didn't select these because other people had selected them. It's that we all selected them for similar reasons. Forty Eridani and, and Tau Ceti are both types of stars that we call solar analogs. These are stars that are very, very similar to right. Earth's sun. And I figured solar analogs would be the places that, since we have a panspermia event, 
that, and just a minor spoiler, within the fiction of the book, life evolved originally at Tau City, and Earth is one of the places that it seeded. And it seeded Earth like 4 billion years mm-hmm. ago, you know. But so since life evolved at Tau City, it evolved kind of originally, it evolved to optimize for the star Tau City. Now, when it traveled, when it went out and spored to other planets, I figured the most likely places where it would be able to kind of take root and start a new biosphere would be places that had very, very similar stars. I see. Solar analogs. Got it. So Sol, yeah. that's the name of our star, yeah. is one such. I mean, from, from Astrophage's point of view, I guess they're Tau Ceti analogs, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sol and Forty Eridani are yeah. both very similar to Tau Ceti. So that's how we all end up as one big extremely extended family. <laughs> so we've talked about astrophage and the panspermian, so we do share common origins, and so the biological systems are not as dissimilar as one might expect. Right, which is another thing that, like, I like to be scientifically accurate, but I did not want to sit down and invent life. But that's you a, did. You must have too thought, much into, like, that's being a, lot. a god. I mean, that's, if <laughs> I could actually lot. do that, I'd get a Nobel Prize or something, right? Right, I mean, <laughs> right. But tell me this, though. You had to have done a lot of reading on not just evolutionary biology, but principles like convergent evolution, right? That is, when different species and different unrelated species in different environments can come to evolve what look like similar, you know, uh, sure. traits. You yeah. had to be thinking about the, the effective environments on the ultimate phenotype, right? The, the phenotype right. of those organisms. Well, you know, with evolution, what happens is the the life like spreads out and specializes in a whole bunch of different ways but since all of the since all of the planets involved here well tau city had its own thing going on uh, but then the other planets that were uh, panspermiid they each their own biospheres developed over billions of years in isolation so there are a lot of things that are so evolutionary useful that any you know macrocellular like any, any macroscopic life anything that's made of like millions of cells stuff like that is almost certainly going to evolve one of them uh, for a good example on earth in uh, in our evolution is uh the power of flight the ability to fly is so useful evolutionarily that it has yeah. independently evolved four different times and is halfway through evolving a fifth time right now so it evolved naturally for um, insects. So flying insects all have a common route. Then unrelated to them, the flying dinosaurs, like pterodactyls, stuff like that, and pteranodons. And then uh, a third one is um, birds, avian, you know, just like all the birds that we have. And the fourth one is bats. Bats mm. are mammals. They didn't come from birds. They evolved flight on their own. And right now, flying squirrels, sugar gliders, stuff like that, these are all mammals that are slowly evolving flight. They've right. got the flaps that let them yeah. glide. Give them, yeah. a, give them a couple hundred thousand years, they'll, they might be able to get lift. Yeah, and assuming so, that the selection pressures are for that, you know, yeah. for that particular trait. But yeah, no, you're right, yeah. And so flight is so useful that it's evolved that many times. Also, like um, on Earth anyway, vision has evolved uh, independently mm-hmm. many mm-hmm. times. It's just real handy to know where the where the photons are and stuff like that. I can imagine that you thought deeply about what the environments might look like in these other planets, and oh, you yeah. thought, okay, if life were to evolve under these circumstances, and, and they could be as high level as what is the atmosphere like? What is the atmospheric pressure and gravity like on the surface of those planets? And for, for readers of the book, you will find that 
Andy goes into some really exquisite detail on how the how an astrophage or other potential life forms could work internally. So I know you weren't trying to reinvent light, but you did in invent some interesting physiological systems. Some, yeah. Also, in terms of inventing life, you know, you start <laughs> off with the okay. You start off by saying, okay, the you know what is it like? The vast majority of your DNA is instructions on how your cells do stuff. Like, what is it like? Housekeeping about, genes. Yeah, uh, housekeeping like about genes. something like 55% of your DNA is identical to a banana's DNA. It's true. It's true. Yeah. So all of that is the same. But then, you know, I, I start off, if I, I'm like, okay, there's a biosphere on this planet. Well, what do I know about the planet? Well, it's a real exoplanet. So I start with that. Oh, it's really close to its star. Okay. So that's, it's going to be really hot. Okay. It's going to be really hot, but I, but since it's a panspermia event, it's using DNA and all these reactions, it needs liquid water. So if it's going to be extraordinarily hot, like over 200 degrees Celsius, like 450 degrees Fahrenheit, that sort of thing, like if it's going to be that hot, the only way for it to have liquid water is to have an incredibly dense atmosphere. The air is so dense that water doesn't boil at that temperature. And so it ends up with, you know, so I'm like, okay, this biosphere has like, you know, it's 200 degrees Celsius and it, it needs something like 29 atmospheres of pressure. I'm like, okay, but at 29 atmospheres of pressure, the atmosphere is so thick that light won't really reach the surface of the planet. Okay, well, things that live on that planet don't need vision because it's useless. <laughs> but so what on. you but but on that point, what you find is that, and I'd be curious about your thoughts, maybe as they are uh, extended to you know sort of the human condition here, but the circumstances in which some species evolved, and say lack of vision, and how they come to view the natural world around them, and what they can and cannot perceive, and what they end up almost theorizing about, there were limitations, and that almost limited their science, and yet. Do you think about that in terms of human science? Obviously, we've built incredible capabilities to go beyond our natural senses. It hasn't stopped our abstract cognitive thought, but I'm curious how you thought about that. So your sensory input has a lot to do with your early cultural development of science, I imagine. But once you get a dedicated scientific, you know, kind of a sense of a scientific establishment and the, a concept of like the scientific method or something like it, where you're like, all right, rather than look at things through the lens of our beliefs or spiritual beliefs or experiences or whatever, we're actually going to assume nothing and only see what we can prove for sure. Once you get to that point in your kind of social evolution of scientific principles, then your own physical, biological senses are way less important because you'll start making technology to detect whatever it is that you want to detect and that sort of thing but if uh, it helps a lot with the early evolution of your science for instance i've often wondered like what would the course of human science have been if the moon wasn't tidally locked so the moon is tidally locked it points the same face at earth all the time but if it wasn't then you would see the moon rotating up there it would be slow but it would be like rotating which means Right from the beginning, everyone, everyone on Earth would know that the moon was a sphere, not a disk, not a, not a round plate that's just pointing at us, but a sphere that is rotating independently. We've known that the Earth was a sphere since the days of ancient Egypt, but they would have known that 
from before the days of ancient, every civilization yeah. everywhere would have known, oh, we're that's a round thing. Maybe we're on a round thing and so on. Well, I'm actually, I, I'm thinking of another angle because we recently had a, an incredible historian of science on the podcast. His name is Seb Folk from okay. University of Cambridge. Okay. And he just recently wrote a book called The Light Ages, The Light Ages, which of course is trying to reevaluate the scientific ingenuity and principles of the, of the quote unquote dark ages. Yeah. It's a terrible name. The dark. It's a ages. terrible a name. Lot of, he, oh, of course. There were so many awesome scientific advances during the dark. They invented the yoke. Yeah. But Andy, what they really relied upon to your point, a lot of it was born out of a study of astronomy. Astronomy right. was the first true science that led to mathematics that led to uh, a sense of time. Right. And, and, and time could either be relative or absolute. And so all these advances and I could imagine if, you know, because just as you say, as the moon is kind of tied, tidal locked and, and, the, and, this, and the periodicity of the moon, you know, if you were to mess around with some of those parameters, I could imagine human science developing actually quite differently, frankly. Mm -hmm. I'd, it's a, yeah. it's, I'd have to think about it more deeply. However, if I go back to the point about, you know, does our sense sense systems inhibit or limit our I thought you were going to say, look, Adam, we've had the scientific method for 300 years. We've had our senses and lived with our senses, evolved with our senses for, you know, umpteen millions of years. And right. so you could imagine there are some cognitive limitations to the way that we sure. think that yeah. we maybe we, doesn't matter what incredible devices you can d devise, you may always be limited, of course, in your cognitive aptitude that's been sure. shaped by evolution. Well, one one good example of that, if you want me to support your point there, Please. is that <laughs> humans, we really have a difficult time perceiving of time itself in the, an accurate way. So it was very important for us evolutionarily to understand our three-dimensional environment and to have a firm grasp on the idea of three dimensions and, oh, hey, there's a leopard over there. Maybe I should be somewhere further away, that sort of thing, right? But we don't have a good perception of what is actually going on with time because it was never necessary. The, the only way that time starts acting wonky is when you get up to velocities way larger than anything in our biosphere ever get anywhere near. And so if we lived in a world where the speed of light was like 20 miles an hour and you could like start getting time dilation by, by riding a bike really fast, then we would probably have evolved right from the get-go a completely different cognitive management of, of time and event sequences and an understanding of how that stuff works. And we would all instinctively understand relativistic physics. Yeah, that's a great point. And that comes up in the book. And of course, to sci-fi fans out there like me, and I'm sure, Andy, if you love movies like Interstellar, which really that primary role, you're going to get more time dilation in Project Hail Mary, which is super awesome. The Martian, of course, is just an incredible survivalist tale. And you kind of come back to that theme to a large extent in Project Hail Mary. Why do you like this? Yeah. Well, I mean, Rylan Grace is, is, is a survivalist tale in the sense that, you know, he's out there on his own. He's trying to figure out what's going on. He's piecing together 
the situation to, for lack of you know more details <laughs> right uh, but it, it's a slightly different thing in that his objective is to save all of humanity whereas mark watney's objective was to save himself Ryland grace it's okay if he dies like it's yeah it, yeah and so what i found that i really enjoy writing is uh, for lack of a better term an isolated scientist so my protagonists tend to have scientific problems they need to solve and they're isolated so they can't get help I love that because it highlights human ingenuity. It, it highlights the scientific method and problem solving, mm. which of course is what your writing is really known for, right? It, and I forgot on the on the one of the blurbs on the cover of the book. I forgot who it was. I really should say who it was, but it was about uh, it's like having the best science teacher you could ever have. I was oh. walking through all these situations, and it was just great. <laughs> but I had another thought, and I wonder if I could scratch below kind of the surface of your psyche here with this. So there's mm -hmm. the survivalist tale does highlight human ingenuity. It's very optimistic, and it's it's survival. But yet, does it also highlight humans' reliance on technology? Because all of your scientists. In these adverse conditions, the surface of Mars, another, uh, you know, an interstellar, we're a different star, have really, they had to use their wits and their logic, but they also had incredible reliance on modern technology. All of my stories take place in an environment that will kill you without technology. So, so it's like, if I write a story about, you know, Moby Dick relies heavily on boat technology, otherwise yeah. all those guys yeah. would just drown. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, yeah, and harpoons, yeah. And in fact, when they do lose their boat technology, they all drown except for Ishmael. <laughs> all right, so I guess I was I was uh, I was uh, I was again probing deep into your psyche there, and that didn't get very far. Ah, uh, there's not a lot there. <laughs> but do you like this idea that um, you know, again, the tacit assumption in the book is that if human beings make contact with alien life forms, it doesn't have past to be. This would pass the spoiler warning. I'm not sure. We well, no, I mean, you talked astrophage. Yeah, right, right. Astrophage. Um, right, That's right. alien life form. Right. Yeah, I always figured, like, why would why would our first contact with an alien life form be intelligent aliens? It's Thank like, you. Yeah. Thank you. It's like the first contact that, uh, shoot, I don't know. It, it makes sense that it would be just yeah. mold. You know, Something is, simple. Yeah. yeah. I actually, I remember I participated in a psych experiment when I was an undergrad, and they they put me down and there was a creati it was supposed to be a creativity experiment. They gave me a blank sheet of paper and say, I really want you to just draw what you think an alien would look like. <laughs> and so I went to the very corner of the page. I made this tiny little kind of like, you know, Dot. little circly squiggly thing. Yeah. And I was like, well, that's that's pretty much it. <laughs> like, uh, anything else? And I was like, no, I honestly believe that the most likely scenario is not you know, a alien or predator or close encounters of the third kind. I think it's probably something pretty, pretty simple, you know, maybe well, even single cell. And we have that in astrophage. If you were given the task of drawing what an earthling looks like, that would also be accurate because there's a whole lot more of those little cells than there are of us. Right. Exactly. Right. And furthermore, not just a whole lot more, but a whole lot more of the biomass of this planet. If you take all the living organisms on this planet and put them together, those single-celled organisms are the bulk of the mass. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, so this is the part of the podcast I'm going to tell all my listeners, if you haven't read the book, go get it, read it. I'm, this is where the spoilers are going to start. And I, I, I admonish you, I implore you, uh, uh, yes, red alert, because I want you to share in the joy that I had of experience all the twists and the turns and surprises. And so stop the podcast, come back for this next part of the conversation, because now we're going to get down to brass tacks, Andy, and I want to ask you some very specific questions. All right, Let's, here we go. Here we Spoiler go. Spoiler zone. Rocky. Rocky. Tell me about Rocky. I have him in my mind. Just what you think. I mean, we, we've talked a little bit about some of the concepts, right? You kind of you set the context, his environment, his homeland, and you give him a form, a phenotype is the, is, is the real word we're looking for. So just talk to me about your thinking around bringing Rocky to life. Who is Rocky? And, and tell, tell us how you came to him. Rocky is an intelligent alien from the planet that we call 40 Eridani B. Uh, Rocky is about maybe 18 inches tall, more like three or four feet wide, basically a five-legged spider. And he has uh, a a lot of mineral protrusions on his exoskeleton, so he looks like somewhat rocky. rocky. He looks like yeah. a rock, kind of. It, we say he, but he's actually a hermaphrodite, and right. his language is like whale song. It actually he has five sets of vocal cords within his body, and it just moves gas from one bladder to another across them, and so. Their language, his species, well, his species, of course, they have a bunch of languages just like we do, but all of their languages involve just squeezing air from one bladder to another across these vocal cords, and they have five sets of vocal cords. So their words are chords, like, you know, just like these five notes played at once has this meaning, or these two notes followed by this note, and then this chord is a different word, and so on. So because they, they're words, their language is so different from ours that we cannot pronounce their words. Our protagonist who meets this alien, although to be fair, I guess he's an alien too. He's not, you know, Ryland is not on, not in the solar system. He's in Tal City. He meets this alien and he just has to start naming things because their words cannot be said in English in, in, by humans. And so he names the guy, he names the alien Rocky um, because he looks like a rock, kind of. And then he named, uh, like, Rockies from the star Eridani, so he names their species Iridians, 
like mm-hmm. it's kind of like Eridanian is kind of clumsy to say, so he drops a syllable out of that and makes it Iridian. And then he decides to name the planet 40 Eridani B. That's kind of a mouthful. So he just calls it Arid, E-R-I-D. Okay, so now he's got some names. Well, the planet Arid in real life is eight times the mass of Earth. This is the planet we were talking about earlier in the interview, where it's eight times the mass of Earth. So it's going to have about two times the surface gravity if it's a solid planet like Earth is. And... So rocky species evolved on that planet, and that planet was panspermia seeded by the astrophage ancestor that also that was also responsible for seeding Earth. So iridians and humans are very, very distant related, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. four billion years down the evolutionary tree. Iridians, their biology is, uh, well, I got to make up a whole alien biology. <laughs> Super awesome. I can't it's wait. Fun. Oh, my gosh. That's, it was so brilliant. But but again, I almost believe, and I'd be curious about your process, that you you kind of take every new fact or new mm-hmm. piece of information about, say, an Iridian, mm-hmm. and then you keep layering new logical plausibilities on top of that. So if he has this atmosphere, he has this skin, just the way the physiology works— Oh, but then if he goes into oxygen, like a human atmosphere, what are the consequences? Right. Shit will go on fire, right? right? Because of his ambient temperature yeah. and, the, and the high oxygen, that's flammable. And so yeah. there's just so many, like, you, I feel like you just keep taking these things to their logical conclusion, but but there's probably a lot of scenarios, but again, the plausible conclusions. Right. And I, that was one thing that was important to me is like, I knew right from the get-go, this was going to be a story about first contact between intelligent life forms and stuff like that. And um, the short answer, if you're listening to this now, you're just, and haven't read the book, you're ruining the book for yourself. But totally. long story short, Rocky is at Tau City for the same reason that Ryland is. His home system is also being affected by astrophage, and they also noticed that Tau Ceti is not dimming, so they also sent a mission. But they had certain advantages in that they have a huge planet with huge oceans, and it's really, really hot there, and the end result means it it was very, very easy for them to breed up an enormous amount of astrophage. It was very difficult for Earth to. But one thing I wanted here was... I wanted to be as plausible as possible on the first contact stuff. And one thing is it's always bugged me when aliens are totally comfortable in our environment and that they can speak the words that we say, right? Yeah. Yeah. And while that is so convenient narratively, it just doesn't strike me as plausible. Humans are barely able to survive like our own planet. Like there are lots of places on this planet where if you go, you'll probably just die because of the environment. Like, if you just go to Antarctica, if you're not very, very well prepared, you're probably going to die, <laughs> right? Same with the Sahara, right? So it seems ridiculous that humans would be comfortable on some other planet's biosphere or vice versa. So I decided one way or another, I want this alien to be completely incompatible with our atmosphere. And that worked well because the planet Arid, as I mentioned earlier, has to be like 200 plus degrees Celsius, and then like 29 atmospheres. Later, I decided that the uh, atmosphere is mostly ammonia. So if a human were in that environment, you would die in under a second. You would die in a fraction. You'd die so fast you didn't know what hit you, which is good because it would be really unpleasant if you had time to experience it. (laughs) And iridians, they have the same problem. Basically, for them, coming into our atmosphere is it's freezing cold, like incredibly cold, Second off, 
it's a massive decompression. I mean, it's almost a vacuum as far as they're concerned. And then third off, unbelievably, <laughs> for some reason, those humans, their atmosphere is like 20% oxygen, oxygen, which is one of the most deadly, toxic, yeah. kill you in an instant chemicals mm-hmm. that exists. And Very in fact, reactive. when Rocky finds this out, he does not understand. He's like, oxygen is incredibly deadly because of course it is. And in, in real life, if oxygen weren't 20% of our atmosphere and if we didn't need to breathe it to live, it would probably be a controlled substance. It's incredibly dangerous. If you have some pure oxygen, it would be very easy to accidentally blow up your whole house. I mean, it's incredibly dangerous. So, yeah. So Rocky is very surprised by that. Anyway, because Iridians, because the atmosphere of Arid has no free oxygen or not enough to matter, they don't have fires. I mean, with their science, they can create fires, but they don't have naturally occurring fires. So no part of their evolution had to evolve to not catch on fire. So they are very flammable in the grand scheme of things. And so if you put them in an, in an Earth-like environment, they are A, flammable, and B, they're really, really hot. So they just catch fire. Mm-hmm. It's horrific. So- <laughs> You know, in the book, of course, one of the most compelling parts is the relationship that builds between Rocky and and, and Rylan Rice. Yeah, they're buddies. And the way that they, over time, not only are they facing similar circumstances with a similar goal in mind, they need to work together, and they really start to form. And they're very different creatures, as you just <laughs> described. And yet, of course, it presupposes a cognitive compatibility, right? <laughs> that is, they can think. In fact... Rocky at one point actually asked the question, and one of my favorite quotes is he says, you know, math is not thinking. Math is procedure. Memory is not thinking. Memory is storage. Thinking is thinking. It's problem, solution. You and me think the same speed. Why? I, as the reader, will actually add, you almost think in the same kind of qualitative style or or you have the same conceptual abilities. And so I'm curious, it makes for a great narrative device. But how did you think about that in terms of what what led you to that? Because you could imagine all of our cognitive, a lot of our cognitive abilities have been, have arisen brain development through our social interactions. You know, Mm. the, 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 well, yeah, there's the the frontal lobe, which is the largest in, in Homo sapiens is thought to be driven over evolution because of our complex social interactions and, and dynamics and the demands placed on our thinking by being in these complex social interactions. And I thought you'd say, you know what, Adam? Iridians are totally different than humans, but they live in social groups. And when you live in social groups, you're going to get maybe some of the same selective forces to get them to a cognitive style or at least a cognitive capability. That's why Ryland Grace and Rocky can actually, once they learn each other's language, they can speak and understand each other. Am I mm. am I so out of left field? Or No, no, no. That, that makes sense. But uh, my explanation was simply, I mean— the reason that they have similar perceptions of the universe and all that stuff like that is because even though we've just described how incredibly different human and Iridian biospheres are, they are actually incredibly similar in the grand scheme of things. They both have like a solid planet with an atmosphere, a ground, uh, naturally evolved, uh, a full active and vibrant biosphere, predator-prey relationships, and so on. And so Iridians, Iridian brains evolved along with Iridian bodies to do the same things and for the same reasons as human brains. 
eventually, my, my theory is that eventually some life form on the planet evolves intellect and it starts to become this, like this feedback effect of the smarter the creature is, the more likely it is to survive. So it just becomes, Mm -hmm. it's an Mm -hmm. incredible evolutionary advantage. We should know it is the sole reason that we're in charge of this planet. Like, Mm -hmm. We're mm-hmm. weaker than most other animals. Or, you know, I mean, St- Stephen Pinker would argue that there's nothing teleological about intelligence, you know, e- evolving, right? Teleological. Teleological, meaning uh, the evolution is not marching towards greater oh, intelligence. Oh yeah, no, that's just that's our evolutionary advantage, right? Right. That's, that's right, what right. we got. But you could imagine you know? that also arising uh, in another planet right. too. And it's yeah. also just sort of a just happenstance that it was primates that developed it yeah i mean primates were fairly smart but you know it could have been you know any of the other species that are pretty bright like you know pigs or dolphins or whatever it could have been them but it's just whichever species devolves intelligence first starts getting smarter and smarter it's going to be a runaway effect and they're going to be the ones that take over the planet so of course my brain now is bouncing to generalized ai but we'll (laughs) we'll leave that to your next book (laughs) all right so for the Iridians, that same thing happened on their planet. I made a list to myself, uh, to myself saying, okay, what is necessary? So I decided my characters, so you're going to meet a spacefaring alien, right? What is required in the biosphere, in the physiological development, in the evolution of this species? What is required for it to end up as a species that is good enough at science to make spacecraft, to do all that and stuff like that. What is required? And I thought like, well, number one, it absolutely positively, they need to have a language. Like there's no way that one being can come up with that level of intellect. Or if it did, if it was possible for a single member of a species to independently invent all the science involved in space travel and everything from scratch, then that species, if they had developed, then you would have, you know, intellectually rather than by by natural selection you would have intellectually invented the concept of language right <laughs> because right. you would say like oh if i could exchange information with that other intellect then i could get you know whatever so there's no way to do this without language and also there's no way to have there's no way to have these extremely complex systems in place unless you have a society a civilization so whatever they are they can't be solitary creatures like you know like bears they have to be they have to have intellect not just intellect they have to have social structures packs Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so i actually went backwards and i decided it goes all the way back to iridian physiology but their means of dealing with infection and and pathogens and stuff like that is the way their bodies work is they have one of their circulatory systems they have two independent circulatory systems and one of them operates hotter than the boiling point of water their blood is not made of water it's made of mostly of mercury but Mm -hmm. it's hotter than the boiling point of water so when they bring in food first thing they do is they heat it up to that point for quite some time before the rest of their body starts processing it so any pathogens that might get in it gets sterilized and because of this, their whole body evolved to avoid exposure to the outside biosphere. So they, for instance, they would, um, they don't breathe. They, they have inside them basically like all parts of a biosphere. They have like, you know, plant-like cells and animal-like cells and stuff like that that live in harmony. They need to bring energy into the system. That's why they eat and they excrete whatever they don't need. But 
They don't let things in and out of their body. Because of this, they need to do the sterilization of the food. Because of that, I designed their muscular system to basically be like, it uses the hot system to boil water, which basically means their muscles are steam powered. It it's expands. Like yeah, yes. it expands um, by boiling the water, then contracts by cooling the water. And that's how their muscles work. And then they have to vent um, heat with these with their carapace. But because of this, when they're digesting food or when they are asleep, the only time they can their body can get into that hot circulatory system because any cells that try to go in there and travel in there and fix things, oh, it's made of inert things, by the way. It's made of most of their body is inorganic, kind of like we have fingernails, hair, and teeth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, most of their body is inorganic material. But when the cells want to go into the hot circulatory system to repair things or deal with routine maintenance, stuff like that, it has to shut that down and let it cool down enough that, that its own cells won't die in there. So that means an iridian has to sleep, which is neat. It needs to sleep so it can cool down that thing. And when it's asleep, it's literally paralyzed. Because the hot circulatory system isn't hot enough to boil the water to make their muscles move, so they are completely helpless. And because of that, because they're completely and utterly helpless when they're asleep, that's why they developed a pack instinct, so they could watch each other sleep. So it could be like, I'll watch you sleep, I'll keep predators from eating you during that time because you're helpless, then you do the same for me. And that's where their civilization stemmed from. And we see lots of examples of sentinel behaviors uh, on Earth, right? You can sure. think of, uh, you know, Canada geese or even the... Or, uh, well, yes, that that's, you know, pack behavior. But also, I mean, if you want sentinel behavior, any any parents. Right. Um, <laughs> like I- I- any, like birds and mammals and stuff. Reptiles, not such great parents. They lay their eggs and they they, they screw off. But, um, exactly. <laughs> but yeah. So anyway, that uh, is all a long story, but basically the social construct exists of like, okay, there's a pack, there's a society, there's a civilization. We work with each other to do way more than any of us could do alone, right? And so both Ryland and Rocky come into their bromance <laughs> with these instinct, instincts already long since evolved. But then I, I love the I love the things where they just really impressed with each other's abilities like yeah. rocky has no sense of sight he d- did not evolve for creatures on the surface of arid but he has these oracles which are basically sound sensing things all over his body and he can get a 3d image of his environment by his brain sorting out that information so kind of like uh, daredevil where you know D- daredevil the character can understand it just from sound and rylan thinks that's amazing whereas rocky is like let me get this straight you can hear light so the idea of making a 3d environment out of sound it sounds like wow really amazing to us but the idea to an alien who's never encountered vision before um the idea of someone being able to form it instinctively form and understand a three-dimensional environment because some ambient radiation got through these tiny little orifices. Like, that's what I love. (laughs) No, I love, you know, you're able to almost turn the lens on the human experience (laughs) from the perspective of an alien, like from arid, like that is, it is, it is pretty fantastic. That is a superpower. Yeah. And Rocky feels it's that way. Yeah. He, he, he really thinks that having sight is really valuable. Well, it is. And and he's amazed. It's like, wow, you know, because Iridians didn't even discover stars 
They didn't even know stars existed until they had the technology to detect light and stuff like that. And they, they, need, they had to invent space travel before they discovered what the hell was outside their own atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. and the, the Iridian uh, to Rocky, it's like, wow. So you can just, you go outside on your planet and you angle your head and you can literally perceive things that are hundreds of light years away from you. And they never got to the theory of relativity either. Yes, that's which right. Which caused Iridians... some problems. And it was yeah. that, I wondered if the the lack of vision and relativity was in your mind somewhat linked, nope. given Einstein's <laughs> famous, like, I'm on the front of a train, the train's right. trying to out, you know what I mean? And I just wondered if that visualization that he often, but okay, no. so I'm wrong. No, <laughs> I'm overthinking I decided, these things, <laughs> I decided, well, I really wanted, you know, oftentimes in, I, I really wanted to break the mold as much as I could. Um, oftentimes in fiction, when first contact fiction, the aliens are either, or the aliens are usually way more advanced. But in this case, in most ways, the humans are way advanced, more advanced than the Iridians. The Iridians are kind of like a century or two behind us in yeah, terms of technology. Yeah. They made this shit, but because of the nature of their planet, they have one technology called uh, xenonite that is a material that's incredibly strong so strong that they could make a space elevator they could do all this stuff so they invented a whole bunch of space travel they don't have computers they've never invented computers also they never really needed to because the way their brains are structured they're very very good at math Mm -hmm. so they didn't really need to invent computers because they can just do extremely complex math in their head right I decided they never invented relative they never discovered relativity they they got as far as what we call Newtonian physics, and right. that was it. It all seemed very clear to them. And so this was their first interstellar flight as well. And so they loaded it up with fuel. They just assumed Newtonian physics would go. You go, yeah, it'll go faster and faster and faster. You get there and then quicker. turn around yeah. and start slowing down, you'll get there faster. And they were really surprised and confused by how the universe seemed to act as they got going beyond a certain speed. And they were like, well... It seemed like, you know, we would go and then we weren't going very fast, but the star was closer to us than it used to be. And that didn't make sense. And when we slowed down, the star got further away, which also didn't make sense. Anyway, so um, they didn't understand anything about relativity and they also didn't understand about radiation. But uh, they'd never encountered. But why radiation. would they? They have an incredibly thick atmosphere. They have an incredibly so. thick atmosphere, and also an incredibly strong magnetic field around their planet, far stronger right. than Earth's. Right, right. And I decided the reason that planet needed a strong magnetic field was because I'd already established it has a really thick atmosphere, and if it's that close to a star, a star basically sandblasts the atmosphere off of planets, and so it's so close to the star. The only way I figured it could maintain an atmosphere that size is if it had a really strong magnetic field, which you get by spinning around fast. So that's why their day is like six hours long. Their, pla- their yep. whole big-ass yep. planet, which is like eight times the size of ours, rotates in like six hours. So anyway, they are super-duper protected from radiation, and they have pretty much no evolved defenses from radiation. Humans do. Radiation can like poke holes in our DNA, and you'll survive for quite a while we we get a dose of radiation every day you know just by going outside or even if you stay in your house iridians don't but anyway there is a a method to my madness on deciding why they never invented relativity because it gave me a reason why they had so much extra fuel (laughs) i don't want to go that far with spoiling right yeah because i still want but on that point i've kind of three 
last questions for you. One is a right. slightly, it's on that one. So of course we're all familiar with the hero's journey, right? Sure. But the hero's journey typically has the protagonist returning home, a changed person. Right. And I couldn't decide, and you don't, you can say as much or as little as you want, but I couldn't decide whether Project Hail Mary was truly a hero's journey or were you deviating from that kind of standard monomyth in some really creative ways? Or how did you think about that? Because there's a hero's journey, but they, they're not, yeah. it doesn't really strictly conform to it. Well, I wasn't attempting to follow the steps of a hero's journey. It's just, I don't know if it's the society I grew up in or the fiction that I've enjoyed my whole life. It kind of turned into something like that. But I would say that you could argue that Ryland went home a changed person. He was definitely a changed person. Right. And he did, in a way, go home because at the end of the book, he's back in his familiar environment, mm -hmm. even though okay. it's not. I, I quite... definitely got that. I got mm -hmm. that point. Um, but that wasn't intentional. I just wanted to show uh, a happy ending for Ryland, but one that I think is somewhat unpredictable. I think everybody would expect one thing and. Get oh, another. totally. Like, I thought the book was basically done. And then, of course, in typical, you know, we're fashion. <laughs> There's another wrinkle. The thing takes another left turn, and I'm left. Uh, so I have a, a couple specific questions now. Why is their number system base six when they have five appendages, three, you know, kind of claw-like fingers, so 15? Why would, they, why would they have a number system that's base six? For the same reason our number system isn't base 20, even though we have four appendages with five digits on each. Their typical comfortable stance is they use three of their legs to stand and two of them to work. So they have six oh, digits that are actively thank working. Thank you. I, I didn't get that. I mean, you were very clear in the book about when he's holding on to different, you know, protuberances in the ship or his, yeah. little, his little stronghold. Well, but I wasn't... for them, feet and hands are kind yeah. of interchangeable. Yeah, they, quite, quite. They are equally adept with all five of their appendages and... They use them interchangeably as feet or hands, but they usually have two hands in operation. No, I get it. And I figured yeah. that was an evolved thing because three feet, a tripod that's extremely stable and safe and sure-footed. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. When we are loading up and designing, the, well, designing and loading up the Hail Mary ship, hmm. it is equipped with every piece of software kind of in the history of the planet, and, and our reader, our listeners may realize that your background is a, is a software engineer. Uh -huh. It has a fully functioning laboratory, mm -hmm. but it seemed to me, and you'll have to convince me otherwise, that it, it lacked a lot of biotechnology tools. And I was somewhat surprised at that because we knew astrophage shared common origins of other biological systems. Okay, so and I was you... surprised at that. I guess you know this when they were attempting to breed mm -hmm. Taumiba, mm -hmm. you could have done that experiment so much faster if you had sequenced it, did a CRISPR screen to look for nitrogen resist genes associated with nitrogen sensitivity, mm -hmm. and then you could have edited those genes in a much more directed fashion mm -hmm. than doing a standard kind of what is a historical breeding program. Well, so. Am they I, had am to I... <laughs> take their best shot. I mean, yeah, but they had to take their best shot on. They didn't know they were going to find a whole biosphere at Tau Ceti. They had no idea what was going to be there. So they tried to give them a lot of generalized equipment that might solve the problem. It is not possible to load up that ship with every piece of equipment that might be necessary. 
Mm-hmm. Like it may mm-hmm. have turned out to be just some geomagnetic anomaly yeah, that's of a true. planet somewhere in the Tau Ceti system that solved the problem. And then what you would really want would be high definition magnetic sensing equipment, you know. Yeah, yeah. But so they just uh they loaded it up with enough tools that he could hopefully that the crew could hopefully do what they wanted. Here's another question. Hmm? We learned that and this is very common. I can give you a mechanistic region, but we can even see it just in terms of the phenotype that when you select for one trait, you will have other traits carry along with that. And that happens to Grace. That does. And and that's an, a very unfortunate. I don't want to give We're that away. Still, but... it, wasn't, it wasn't just other traits that happened to be hitching a ride on that trait. It was other traits that were more effective at that doing were... what he was breeding for. <laughs> yes, yeah, so you put selective pressure on those traits. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it wasn't what they were looking for. But why didn't the substance that they cared so much about, why didn't it show any evidence of the infiltration? Because if you think a way like, you know, you a lot of cells, or... yeah, like bacteria secrete things that could erode or catalyze. Like, How come well, the xenonite didn't show any evidence of well, that? Let me ask you that. Um, yeah. So the answer is they never checked. They never checked the tank. I was even expecting some discoloration or something that well, would... Well, what if there was discoloration? Or... Wouldn't you just think, oh, well, this is full yeah. of all sorts of weird chemicals and stuff like that? And you're right. And you're right. The astrophage glump after they've killed them, yeah. you know, is pretty nasty, dark, smelly stuff. So yeah. I guess you're right. It could obscure any microfractures or something. Yeah. When you were reading it before you found out about that uh, unfortunate, uh, you know, selection yeah. behavior, did it ever occur to you? To say, like, hey, they should check the tanks to see if anything weird is happening to the xenonite. I thought it was a leak. I thought it was a leak. I, a and, and of leak. course, naturally, that's where they went to. I started to feel it when when uh, Rocky's creative, like, alloy that he had mm-hmm. made seemed to be... That was really the first clue, that there was something about the xenonite. And I guess, and even from just reading it... Xenonite seemed like such a miracle substance mm-hmm. that I guess in my mind, I'm kind of thinking like, oh, no, 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 no. There's something's going to happen. It's not it's not <laughs> yeah. a miracle substance. Too like, perfect. <laughs> it's too perfect. Ooh, too perfect. But but I, I get what you're saying. Yep, I can definitely get that. Last question for you. Are you a Beatles fan? And if so, what's your uh, favorite album? I am very much a Beatles fan. Huge Beatles fan. And my favorite album is Sgt. Pepper. Ah, uh, Just like Stephen Hatch. Just like Stephen Hatch. Andy Weir, thanks so much for being on Inquiring Mind. This was a blast. Thanks for having me. All right, it was incredibly fun. Thank you to Andy Weir. You know, this was one of the first interviews I've done where we could actually see each other. uh, (laughs) And it was great because he's such a casual, fun guy. We really had a good conversation that kept going. And I didn't mention in the interview, but it was in the press materials, so I feel at liberty to disclose this. But it seems that NGM does, in fact, have the rights uh, to this book. Uh, and so possibly nice. there's another, you know, Andy Weir uh, movie? movie in the future. Awesome. I would love to see how they treat some aspects of this, the characters, the situations. You know, this this movie would be a, a real challenge to do. Uh, at any other time without all the CGI and and special effects technology we have today. But I bet you it was going to be awesome. Well, I haven't finished reading it, so I can't listen to the second half of your interview before we record this. Uh, So you didn't say anything bad about me, did you? You'll have to listen. (laughs) All right. Well, I'll trust that you didn't. And I'll look forward to hearing the rest. Yeah, it was great to talk to Andy as always. And it's just wonderful to discover a new book that kind of creates a whole new world 
once again, just like one of my favorite things about fiction. Yeah, and he does that. And, you know, on that point, it feels like this is the type of book, unlike, not unlike, but it, it feels like it has real sequel potential mm. because the, the end has a very, has real resolution at the end, but it's clear that the story's not yet over. And so there really is an opportunity for Andy to sort of pick up that thread and continue pulling on it. And I, I hope he does that. It's a, it's a great story. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. If you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of this show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kai Rehala, Michael Galgul, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stefan Meyer Awald, Charles Bile, and Dale Lamaster. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. And I'm Adam Bristol. See you next time. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.